0: Good morning Um, it's good to be here Uh, today we start a new series on relationships titled alive and well the series will explore relationship issues related to parenting singleness marriage and friendships today I'm going to be sharing our first of two messages on parenting and I'll be sharing from the perspective of a next-gen pastor and also a dad with four young kids Next week, Steve will come and share the second message on parenting from the perspective of a father with grown kids. Before we jump into today's uh, message, a quick side note, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. To those of you who have raised grown kids, are currently raising kids, or desire to be raising kids, you are gifts to your family. And so thank you uh, for your role as dads. I don't know about you, but picking out picture frames is not one of my favorite tasks in the entire world. If my wife were to hear me say that, she would have a puzzled look on her face because it's not actually a task I ever do. And there are reasons for that. Uh, First, it's kind of a crafty thing and I'm not the most craft-oriented person in the entire world. But the second reason is, picture frames all come with pictures in them. Perfect pictures. Pictures that I see, and I start comparing uh, my family to the ones that I see in the frames, and I feel like I'm missing something. So here's a couple pictures of picture, here's a couple examples of pictures you might find in a picture frame you were to purchase. The first one here, um, I see this, and um I immediately start making my self-improvement list. Okay, I need to be more active with my family, biking, picnics, catching a few butterflies, and hey, let's throw the tent in the back of the van because let's make it an overnighter. Why not? Right? And look at that dog. <laughs> like, there's no way our dog would sit there and take that picture like that. It just wouldn't happen. So I better go check out a training book. Right? Or how about this fit picture? I can only imagine what would go down if my family tried to take this picture. (laughs) Hey, family, how about a picture on the merry-go-round? Let's give it a spin, just because, to get some of that sweet motion blur in the background. At least one of my children would end up in the emergency room, either because they lost their balance, or one of them saw this as an opportunity to exact revenge for a previous dispute and gave them a quick shove off the back of the merry-go-round. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't often compare myself to pictures I see in frames, but I do see my friends posting pictures online. And I'll catch myself sometimes dreaming of what it might be like to live their life. I can look at someone else's life and believe that they don't actually have the same kinds of problems that I have. And maybe some, for some reason, their life is easier. After all, I don't get to see the hard parts of your life on a daily basis, just like you don't get to see the hard parts of my life on a daily basis. I'll see these family pictures and I'll begin to wonder, am I being the father my kids need me to be? Am I giving them the life that I've always wanted to give to my kids? And I'll question my parenting. Today, we take a look at the story of the prodigal son found in the book of Luke chapter 15. The word prodigal is an adjective used to describe the young son and his actions. It comes from a Latin word that means lavish. And if you're not familiar with this parable, the younger son uh, takes his inheritance and he spends it in a very reckless and lavish way. Yet the word prodigal can also be used to describe another character in the story, the father. Being a parable, this passage is a story that Jesus made up to make a point. When Jesus tells this parable, he's surrounded by a wide variety of people. In verse 1 of chapter 15, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We see these two groups of people mentioned often in the Gospels. The first group, tax collectors and sinners, were often involved in nefarious activities such as theft and prostitution and other things that were clearly condemned in the Old Testament. The Pharisees and scribes were educated men who had authority and tried to adhere to the religious law. The two groups didn't mix terribly much. But when Jesus was near, people from all walks of life wanted to be present and see and hear see what he would do, and hear his words that he taught. So finally, uh, before we jump into the text, there are three main characters in this parable. The younger brother, the older brother, and the father. The tax collectors and sinners would quickly be able to identify that they were the younger brother in this story, the Pharisees and scribes, the older brother, and the father figure was God. For today's purposes, since we're talking about parenting, we're going to really focus on kind of the father's role in this parable. So jumping in, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 13, we read, And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Some scholars say that the son's request was kind of the equivalent of him saying to his father, I wish you were dead. But staying focused on the father's actions, his, son requests, his son's request puts him in a precarious situation. He has a choice to make. I don't think the father had any hope that his son would actually take that inheritance, invest it wisely, and make a life for himself. No, I think his plan of action was quite clear. And as a result, the father, in giving his son his inheritance, may seem foolish to many. Yet, what would have happened if he didn't give his son the inheritance? We can only guess, as it's a story that Jesus was telling. But an embittered son who would possibly leave anyway is quite possibly one result. Continuing on with the story... Jesus says, and when he had spent everything, the son, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. The sun spends everything. Calamity hits that region and Here he is feeding pigs for a wage that's seemingly less than what it would take to buy one portion of what the pigs were eating himself. It's in those circumstances that we read, but he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. His journey home was surely a miserable one. He would have been hungry, filthy, and laden with the burden of his past decisions. I can imagine the weight of his actions as he went over the last hill when he knew his old home was about to come into view. Likely rehearsing his prepared speech over and over, I'm not worthy to be your son. Treat me as a hired servant, hoping that at best his father would hire him as a servant so that he at least had uh, something to eat. But then something happens in the story. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, this long journey home gets cut short because his father sees him. His father could have justifiably sat right where he was, seething with anger over his son's actions and waited for his son to complete his journey, but he didn't. He runs to his son. He embraces him with a love and excitement that had to be so surprising to the son. The son still knew what he had done, and he felt the weight of it. So he starts his, so he starts into his research rehearsed speech. And before he can even finish, the father interrupts him. Before the son could even say to the father, treat me as one of your hired servants, the father cuts in. And this is what he says. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. No, son, you will not be treated as a servant. You are my child. Your identity lies not in your actions welcome home. I'm so delighted you're here. As I mentioned earlier, the word prodigal is used to describe the son and his foolish behavior often when we say this is the story of the prodigal son. But the father can also be described as a prodigal because the word prodigal means lavish, right? And so the father lavishly shows his love to his son his lavish giving of love and acceptance and identity by his actions would have been so very unexpected by the hearers of this parable. Like I said, the sinners and tax collectors would have identified themselves as the younger brother in the story. And what Jesus was saying, if we step out of the parable for a second, is he was telling the sinners and the tax collectors that there is a place for them in God's family, that they are welcome but there's another brother to deal with, right? So now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. The NLT translation says, The father begged him to come into the celebration. But the older brother answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, he who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed. The fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and what is mine, all that is mine, is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, the NLT translation translates that as the father saying, Look, dear son, you are always with me. The party was just as available to the older son as it was the younger son, but his pride prevents him from entering into the celebration. The same was true of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their power, and they loved their position and status more than they desired fellowship with God. The prodigal father offered love and fellowship to both of his sons in the same measure. Despite their very different life choices, their need for their father's grace and love was the same. So as we look deeper at what the father did in this parable, in this story that Jesus told, I have two application points that I want to talk about. The first is, if you lose relationship, you lose influence. The amount of influence that we have is closely related to the strength of the relationship that we have with our children. The father in Jesus' parable prioritized his relationship with his sons. And to understand how we deepen our relationships with our kids, I think it's kids, it's important to understand the two different kinds of influence that we have. So up on the screen, this chart shows two different kinds of parental influence. And it might be hard to read, so I'm going to kind of talk you through it. On the left, there's two circles. The top circle says positional influence, and the bottom one says relational influence. It works from uh, birth to graduation, basically, across the chart. And so starting with the preschool phase, when our kids are young, we have a very high level of positional influence. Our children must depend on us to keep them alive when they're young. Our positional influence comes in handy when we need to warn a toddler about a hot pan. He may not recognize what the concept of heat means, but because we are his mother, because we are his father, he knows that when we say, that's hot, don't touch, that there's something there to be obeyed. But as our children age our relational influence in their life becomes more important. Instead of creating safe boundaries for them to operate inside of, we become confidants, we become advisors, we help them process situations that they find themselves in, and then make informed decisions for themselves. You might also recognize that this chart shows the amount of hours we have to influence children on average as they move across the chart. So, in the preschool phase, we have about 12 hours a day that we spend with our kids to influence them. When the elementary phase kicks in and they go to school, that scales back to six hours. Middle school, four hours. High school, two hours. And as the kids grow, you'll see that the two lines begin to converge until they meet. The intersection of influence there usually happens right in the middle school years where your positional influence is about the same as your relational influence. And then as your kids continue to grow, those two influences diverge. Your relational influence becomes more important and your positional influence becomes less important. And what you say to your kids and how you advise them, how you engage with them over their circumstances becomes more important than what you're telling them to actually do. Currently, Amy and I have children who are seven, five, three, and ten months old. Our life is full. My wife and I have all the positional influence that we've ever dreamed of having, but we often talk about how we don't want to lose sight of the relational influence that we'll need in the not too distant future. The fact is, what you do when you have positional influence has a direct result on how much relational influence you have later in life. So how you parent when you have positional influence has a direct correlation with how much relational influence you will have when your children are older. Reggie Joyner, a highly influential figure in next ministry, in a recent blog post titled, Advice I'd Give Myself If I Were Starting Over as a Dad, listed 11 things that he would prioritize These 11 things are fantastic ways to build relational capital when you have a lot of positional influence. He mentions that he would listen more and talk less. Not send his kids to bed, but instead put them to bed. Make it an experience. He would ask better questions. He would guard Saturdays to create family traditions. He would not sign his kids up for everything. I love how he unpacks that one. He says, so often we make our kids experientially rich, but relationally poor. He says he would play more games. He would not take things too serious. And he would never punish anyone relationally. He would do chores together with his kids. He would say, I love you, every day. And he would apologize often. That's not an exhaustive list of how to gain relational influence. And your list may not look exactly like that, but the important thing is for us as parents to know that what we're doing when our kids are young directly affects the amount of influence that we have with them as they get older. Now, if your kids are older and you find yourself squarely in the relational influence stage of life, bless you. Seriously, it's hard. Knowing when to use your influence to push and pull and in what measure to do so is not easy. So I'm going to tell you something that we tell our volunteers in the middle school and high school departments often. No matter what our kids come to us and share with us, and we invite them to share whatever they want to share, and they do. But no matter what they come to us and share with us, we tell them that it's okay to freak out on the inside. But on the outside, do your very best To remain calm and composed. Because if they visibly see us freak out, they're going to shut down. So let's do this as an exercise. I want you to take a few seconds and think about one of your greatest fears as a parent. What is the thing that's kept you up at night? Make it a big one. Now imagine your 16-year-old child coming to you and saying, Mom, Dad... I, then fill in the blank with that fear. Mom, dad, I, what is that thing that you've always feared? That's what happened in the parable. So here are a couple of phrases to use in situations like this. Oh, wow. That sounds like a terribly hard situation showing empathy for the situation your kids are in will go a long ways in giving them permission to open up more many speakers have often said that kids won't care about what you know until they know you care here's another phrase can you tell me more gaining a deeper understanding of what's going on is critical There may be more to a situation than what immediately meets the eyes. Often youth already know what's right uh, when they're coming to you with hard situations, but they need to talk it out. They need to say things out loud without getting lectured. Here's another phrase. How can I help or support you? If in their minds the whole world has set itself against them, will you still have your back? Will you still have their back? One more, no matter what, I will love you with everything I have for all the days of my life. You see, when a child knows that a parent's love for them is unconditional, the game changes. If they're coming to you and confessing something they know you disapprove of, they likely don't need you to tell them that you disapprove, they already know. And they're already experiencing some level of shame and guilt. The question they're really asking, without realizing it, is Are you in my corner? Now, I'm not saying we should give kids free license to do anything they want, I'm not saying don't discipline your kids. You know your style, and you know your kids and what they need better than anyone else. But if our kids don't realize that we are for them, if they don't realize that we're in their corner, even in the hardest parts of life, then we're not going to get all of what they have to bring to us. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions because they're not going to ask them. So for our kids in this church, I hope the answer to that question, are you in my corner, is always yes, There's no equation that guarantees success in parenting. Our children all have their own decisions to make. So maybe you follow this advice to the T. Maybe you've done all that you can do to the best of your ability to do it. And your kids still rebel against your hopes or desires for their life. It happens. Which leads me to my second point of application. The most important thing you can do for your child is not actually working towards a healthy relationship with them. The most important thing you can do is live your life in a fashion that shows you've received the same kind of love that was offered to the two sons by the father in the parable. Our realization for, of our own need for grace should never take a backseat to what we're trying to do with our kids. If I'm not experiencing grace... I don't give grace easily. If I'm not experiencing forgiveness, I don't forgive easily. We reflect God's character in the same measure that we, experience, that we experience him as a loving parent for ourselves. And if you hear those words and it makes you start crafting your spiritual self-improvement plan, I'm gonna read the Bible more, I'm gonna pray more, et cetera, Those things are good and they may be needed, but that might not be the best place to start. Maybe the best place for us to start as parents is to sit exactly where we are, to look at the Father and to see the Father seeing us where we're at right now, running to us, embracing us putting the best robe on us, putting his ring on our finger and saying to us, you are my child. Your identity does not lie within your actions. Welcome home. I'm so delighted you're here. Coming back to the family photos, we had ours taken recently with mixed results. Lucy, for one, was not having a good day. This is our family photos. Um, But we got a few good ones too. That's our crew. And as I studied in preparation for today and reflected on my own life, I came to a couple conclusions for myself. My comparisons that I do with other people's pictures have more to do with my failures to fix my eyes on God and see what he has said is true about me. The way that shows itself in my parenting is I will often use my positional influence to make my kids behave because I'm so worried about what others will think of me based on my kids' actions or my kids' behaviors. (coughs) So as a result, I lose some of my relational influence in their lives because I've forced them to behave in a way that reflects well on me. And so if that behavior sounds familiar, trading relational influence for a better behaving kid is a bad trade but luckily kids are gracious and understanding when we honestly come to them confessing our shortcomings when we make mistakes and we come to our kids and say i'm sorry i did that wrong please forgive me and they see demonstrated effort to change they're so kind and gracious and they give us more chances so May we all learn how to lavishly love our families in the same manner that the father and the story of the prodigal son loved his sons, showed them his, showed him his favor, and gave them their identity as his children. May we parent in that way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, on Father's Day, um, we come to you and... There are so many things in life that are hard, wrapped up in this idea of parenting. Um, Some people here likely want to be parents so bad, but for some reason they can't, or they're not yet, and hearing about parenting is just painful. Maybe some have kind of completed their parenting journey and their kids are grown and they're filled with lots of regret. God, show up and comfort them as well and work to rebuild relationships that need to be rebuilt. Some are drowning in the weight of parenting, whether they're fostering, whether uh, their kids just have a rebellious nature. Whatever the case may be, God, uh, parenting is just hard and it's fraught with Uh, Anxiety and uh, questions about whether we're doing things right or not. And so, God, I pray that we as a church would look towards you, that we would love you um, and that we would fix our eyes on the example that you've set for us and how you've welcomed us into your family and how you discipline us because you love us you graciously forgive all of our mistakes because of your son who paid the price for those mistakes and so god may we parent in that way may we point our kids towards you and show them your glory and the beauty of your sacrifice it's in your name we pray jesus amen